Well, we had a good time this afternoon, didn't we? I know that most of you are going to find this schedule this week very exhausting. As some of you are already tired. Uh, this is the only way we know how to do two weeks' work in one week is to do it long hours. And so I would encourage you, after the service tonight, to go back to your rooms or wherever and get some sleep. Because believe me, if you're tired tonight, <laughs> you're really going to be tired by Thursday or Friday. Now, the lectures generally will correspond chapter by chapter with the materials that are in your syllabus. The introduction, preface, and all introduces the basic thesis of our conference, which is that the church today is not operating in the power of the New Testament church. We believe that that power is available. We believe that in the area of evangelism particularly, the church is operating in a very secularized evangelistic dynamic. We've called that programmed evangelism. Most of what all of you have been exposed to your entire life is some sort of programmed evangelism. Either it is a uh, clearly thought through four or five or six point evangelistic uh, presentation, sometimes with visual aids and illustrations, sometimes out of a book other times with uh, other kinds of helps and aids, but nonetheless, something that's pre-programmed, that's thought through before it's ever given. We have many examples of programmed evangelism based on various aspects of settings and various aspects of players or performers doing it, but it all comes from the assumption that evangelism basically is content-oriented. And that once the content has been delivered to the individual, that we've then achieved our ends. From that point on, it's the individual's responsibility to decide what he's going to do with that content. My basic thesis is that, though that is valid and helpful, it is a westernized view of evangelism and not a biblical view at all. Those of you that have read the first chapter of the syllabus have better understanding of what I am saying and what I'm about to say than those of you that haven't. My encouragement to you is that between times, you read and think and talk with those that you're with. Now tonight I'm going to introduce a, the topic of uh, power evangelism as I see it. This is something that I've been thinking about and working with for a number of years. We're going to give you biblical illustrations as well as contemporary illustrations of power evangelism. After the break, we will deal with the issue of power encounter. And we'll show you that that's an, yet another aspect of the evangelistic dynamic that has been overlooked by the Western mind. Now, on page one of your notes on power evangelism, it says power, we have a definition of power evangelism that goes this way. A presentation of the gospel which is rational, but also transcends the rational. It comes with the demonstration of the power of God through signs and wonders and introduces the numinous of God. Now, if the word numinous is unfamiliar to you, 
right presence next to it. We're talking about the manifest presence of God. We believe that the manifest presence of God should accompany the gospel presentations and or the gospel presentations should accompany the manifest presence of God. Wherever God is, this gospel needs to be preached. Wherever this gospel is preached, God needs to be. God is committed to his side. Our problem is that we haven't recognized the level of commitment that he's ready to make. And so we have not gone out in the power of the presence of God ready to perform the activity that Jesus illustrated and the apostles illustrated in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Now we've included on page one uh, a diagram, the first of which is called a human information processing diagram. This is done by James Ingle, uh, published in Consumer Behavior, 1973, page 210. And in it, in the diagram, reading from left to right, we have a message which is labeled the stimuli. This message is exposed. Through the process of exposure, it, it penetrates the filter of the listener. The, the listener receives, to the degree that he receives, this exposure and in, interpolates it and interacts with it in terms of his own information and experiences, both past, present, and future. As the exposure continues, there is uh, an ever-increasing dimension of intention in which the listener uh, is uh, drawn further into the dynamic of the exposure, of the stimuli, and continues to evaluate and interact with their information and experience. Until such a state is realized as that we would label comprehension, they finally begin understanding what we're talking about. This ultimately then will impact attitude and will come to a place of retention. Now this diagram could be used for any kind of inf human information processing. It's going on right now. I'm saying things, you're listening to them, you're interacting with your understanding and with your background and with your previous experiences. You're gaining some comprehension of what I'm saying. I'm saying it enough times and in enough different ways that it's beginning to penetrate into your inner man and you're beginning to respond to it with an understanding. Oh, this guy's talking about the communication process. I understand that. But now you understand it from a new perspective. And so communication is uh, graphable. You can organize it. You can understand the process of how it occurs. Furthermore, the gospel presentation as a message can be uh, explored through a graph. And James Ingle has developed what is commonly known as the Ingle scale. And what you have in Roman numeral 2 is a communication diagram dealing with the complete process of making disciples. Now, James uh, wrote this uh, particular uh, piece, and uh, it was adapted from a work that he did called What's Gone Wrong with the Harvest, published in 1975, which is an excellent book dealing with some of the basic issues of the fact that we're not evangelizing as effectively as we should or could or ought. It was that book that stimulated me to begin dealing with this whole issue of evangelism. It's one of several things that I encountered over a period of about five years, but it was one of the more stimulating books, and so you may want to read that or gain it. This particular uh, rendition is an adapted scale developed by Pete Wagner uh, from the Ingalls scale. In it, he 
develops based on a minus 10 through 0 presentation, various stages in which a person comes from a point in which they are ignorant of, the, of Christ and his claims uh, to a point in which they have come into regeneration. As the scale descends, and I'll read it, uh, we go from ignorance to awareness, from awareness to understanding, from understanding to how that relates to personal involvement with Christ, and finally a decision is made, a verdict, concerning the veracity, the truth, the claims of Jesus, in which the person makes a decision to go or not to go, to receive or not to receive, to take or to reject the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Based on the assumption that they're receiving, this scale goes on and demonstrates that the ground zero, stage six, is regeneration. They've come to the place now where they know and understand who Jesus is, and it has an impact on their inner man They've become born again of the Spirit of God. Now, the Engel scale basically just takes one more step on the plus side and brings them into the body of Christ. It's at this point that Peter Wagner has developed a more definitive scale in which he's added the issue of disciple-making from a theological perspective and then finally disciple-making as it's related to the strategic dynamic that we not only have to have a good theology of discipling, we also have to have a reality in which people are ultimately grounded in the Word and brought into the community of Christ and brought into the works of Jesus. And so regeneration at stage 6 gives way to incorporation in stage 7, in which the person, uh, individual and or group of individuals, are incorporated into the body of Christ. A disciple is counted. They have been added to the community. They're a viable part of the Christian community. Phase two is the the training aspect of that, and finally it brings them to stage three in which they become a witness for Christ. So witnessing in this sense is related specifically to the discipling dynamic of not just witnessing, speaking, but being a witness, being a member of the community, having identity there, and having something to witness about. Now this scale is very, very helpful. Once you see the scale and the way that it operates, it helps you with the communication process and the unsaved. When you're dialoguing with a person, it only takes a moment or two to find them on this scale. If they're totally ignorant of Christ, you know you're at stage one. And so you deal at a much different level than you would if you caught someone at stage five, where they were saying, yes, I've been thinking about the claims of Christ. I've been dialoguing with my friend, my mother, my sister, my brother. We, I'm aware that Jesus died for sin. And I, and I just don't know whether I can live the Christian life or I, and there are any number of obje- objections that we're all familiar with that people often uh, voice at that stage uh, just before salvation. But the bottom line is that the scale helps you in understanding who you're speaking to. And if, you have, uh, if you've ever seen someone, and I have because I've done so much street evangelism and so much personal evangelism, I've seen people missing the mark a thousand miles because they, they've been trained in one presentation. And here they are working at stage five with an individual that's at stage one. And they're admonishing him and saying, you're going to hell if you don't turn to Jesus. You need to make this decision tonight. And the guy's saying, Jesus, who? What? What? What are you talking about? Jesus. You know, I don't know Jesus. What are you talking about Jesus? You know, and uh, it's it's an embarrassing situation when you see somebody, you know, under the guise of being on fire for Christ and, and coming at a person and trying to draw them to a decision when they don't have enough information to make a decision. 
Now, on the other hand, let me share this with you. There's also a scale that we have not articulated here that would, we could call the power scale. And when God begins dealing on a power level, he can penetrate the inner heart of man and, and actually bring them to a point of salvation before they have any understanding of who it is they're dealing with. And we'll talk more about that as we develop through this week. And so I see two basic dynamics. The natural, in which a communication process is occurring, much as depicted, as Engel has put it here. Then I see a, a, realm, a scale in the realm of the supernatural, in which God is able to pierce the hearts and consciousness of men and women, and sometimes save them with little or no understanding of what's going on. I remember uh, one uh, really interesting uh, couple that were converted here. Uh, they, uh, this is when we were still over in the high school, in the gymnasium. And uh, they were out for a walk. They were a middle-aged couple, about my age. And they were walking along, <laughs> along the street. You know, it was a Sunday morning. And they saw all these cars over on this, at this high school auditorium. And they thought, I wonder what it is. Maybe they're having an affair or a, uh, some sort of a sale or a bake-off or something like that. Let's go. And so they came over, and I remember that particular day, I was uh, uh, ministering, and, I, and, I, and they came a little late, and I looked up, and I saw them standing at the door. In fact, we were just beginning to worship, and I had just been sharing a little bit before we worshiped that particular day, which is unusual. I don't usually do that. And I had shared a couple things, and I saw them standing there. We sat down and began worshiping, and I saw them talking to each other. And he was saying, oh, let's go, you know. And she said, no, let's wait a minute. And then he saying, well, all right. And they, and they go, and they, they sit down, and, and you see them sitting there. And clear across the room, I could see after about three minutes, their faces were glistening with tears. Now, they didn't have a clue as to what was going on. <laughs> you know, they, didn't have an, they didn't have any more idea what was going on than, than anybody. They just liked the music. And the music made them cry. And they didn't know why the music made them cry, but it made them cry. <laughs> and so they just sat there and cried all the way to the church service. And I taught, and that particular day, I wasn't uh, uh, teaching on evangelism or teaching the evangelistic message. I, I don't even remember the content, but I think I was working in Hebrews, you know, and it was, that's a tough time, place to be any time, you know. And so I'm teaching through it, and at the end of the service, I, I'm uh, closing the service, and the Lord says, call, call people forward, I've got some ready to be saved. And I said, Lord, I didn't even present the gospel. And he said, well, explain it to him. So I said, well, you know, there's a God, and he loves you, and he sent his son, and he died for you. And, you know, and I made a basic presentation of what it meant to be a sinner, and to be saved, and to know forgiveness of sin. And I said, any of you that, that want to receive Christ, come forward. Well, the first two people up out of their seats was this couple. And they came forward, and, and uh, we took them into a back room. Well, as it turned out, there were a lot of people that day that were converted, but uh, th that particular couple uh, were standing next to me and talking to a, uh, uh, one of the advisors that was taking them through the, the presentation, and they, uh, the advisor says, what do you want? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> well, why are you here? And they said, we couldn't stop ourselves. And they said, well, what are you doing back here in this room? Well, the man said to come. And they said, <laughs> and he said, well, do you want to receive Christ? And the guy says, well, wait a minute. Is this a church? <laughs> and the advisor said, well, that's what we use for a church. And, and he said, well, it looks like a gymnasium to me. And he said, well, what are you guys doing here? And uh, the, <laughs> the advisor said, I don't know now. I'm getting confused myself. <laughs> and, and said, 
What do you want to do about Jesus? And they just started weeping again. They said, well, we just want to love him. And so he explained very carefully about sin and the forgiveness of sin. Oh, do we get that too, they said. And they prayed a very beautiful prayer. Now, my point in sharing that story with you is there was no compulsion about a decision. They didn't understand what was happening to them. They were being drawn in the net of the Savior by another means, by another scale, by another process. Something that, that is not on paper here. Now, they needed this scale too. There has to be clarification. There has to be communication. But there is a, yet another dynamic that in which there is a supernatural line being thrown out and people are being drawn in by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that uh, factor that we want to consider this week. On page two, we've uh, put a, a, an axis called the resistance receptivity axis. When church growth people are working with various aspects of, of the growth of the church in the various communities around the world, we often will take the, the various social segments uh, of a given community and plop them along the axis. We usually put a scale of 1 to 10. Along that scale of 10, say the 10 would be the most resistant and the 1s would be the most receptive. There, we would look at a given uh, community, say if we took Orange County. In Orange County, we have a number of differing kinds of people. We have uh, various, people that are, have various ethnic backgrounds. We have people that have various educational backgrounds. We have people that have various occupational backgrounds. We have people that, are, that can be socially segmented some other way. These people have commonality of identity. Some of them would see themselves as upper middle class. Some of them would see themselves as lower middle class. Some of them would see themselves as blue-collar workers. Others would identify at another level. But at whatever point they identify, there's what we would call homogeneity. If we did a plot of Orange County, there are certain social segments that are very, very responsive to the gospel. The middle class people to the lower middle class in Orange County is very responsive to the gospel. The Hispanics are very responsible, responsive, and the Caucasians are very responsive. The blacks are less responsive. They're more gospel-hardened in Orange County. And so as you go through the community, you can actually plot given portions of the county, given segments of, of, the, of the county that are more gospel-hardened, more resistant, and those that are more responsive. Now, of course, there are exceptions in, to every rule. Uh, of any given social segment that might be lego, labeled uh, resistant, or uh, hardened towards the gospel, uh, personal calamity or some circumstance uh, like that can bring that person into readiness to receive Christ just overnight. Maybe someone dies in the family. Maybe there's some sort of economic problem that develops. Maybe there's something else. But it, in that crisis situation, the people become very responsive and open to the gospel. But by and large, you can actually plot various social segments, various neighborhoods, various kinds of people along this resistance receptivity axis and recognize those that are the most responsive to the gospel in a given place in a given time. Now, having said that, let me say this, that when power evangelism is added to the, to the uh, presentation, when you not only have program evangelism, but you have the added dimension of power evangelism, the potential for salvation for any individual at any time is greatly heightened. You see, when you're operating in power, when you're operating in the gifts of the Spirit, and you know the sins of a man's heart, 
It doesn't matter how hard he is against the gospel. If you can name his sins to him, you've got his attention. You've got his interest. One time I was uh, flying in an airplane, uh, going to Chicago, actually, from New York City. As I sat down in the plane, uh, and it was, it was actually was taking off. I'd, I'd been back getting some magazines or something. And I, and I was sitting down, and I turned and looked across the aisle, and the man sitting across the aisle had written across his face the word adultery, and below it, a woman's name. I looked at that, and I thought, wow. <laughs> I'm always very spiritual at these moments, you know. And I, I said, wow, you know. And he saw me looking at him. And it sort of, I don't know, irritated him. He looked over the aisle and says, what are you looking at? And I said, well, I, I was looking at you, but actually what I, I want to know is, what does the name such and such mean to you? And his face just turned white. And he gasped and he said, we've got to talk. And that particular airplane uh, had a, uh, an upstairs, a, a little bar. This was a number of years ago. And uh, he said, come on up here. So we went up these spiraling things, and, and we're up in this little bar there. And there were seven or eight people up there, uh, a stewardess and, uh, and uh, some customers. And we're standing there, and he says, well, and by now I, I'm, I'm on to it. I recognize what it is God's doing as I'm following up, uh, him up the stairs. And uh, so we get up there, and the guy says, how'd you know that name? And I said, God told me. He said, who? I said, God told me. And furthermore, God says that if you don't turn from this adulterous relationship, he's going to take your life. And the guy just went, ah, like that. And he says, what, what must I do? He, he said it more gaspy than that. I can't really mimic it. He said, what must I do? And I said, repent. He said, tell me how. And I says, well, just pray. Just tell Jesus. And I started to lead him in a prayer, but I got through two words and he took off, man. And I want to tell you something. That man repented. You know? He repented so much that the stewardess cried. The two or three other... I mean, they all heard his repentance. He says, oh, God, I'm sorry. You know? You know? And he turned away from his sin. Well, I'm, standing, I'm crying with him. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's, I mean, so precious to see a man turn away from his sin, you know. And afterwards, he's standing there, and the tears are still running down his face. And he said, uh, he said, the reason I was so upset is my wife was sitting down there with me when you asked what that woman's name is. He said, I, I just didn't know what I was going to do. What should I do? And I said, well, you'll have to go back and tell her. He said, I do? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think that's what the Lord wants you to do. So he went back downstairs and, and went and sat down and said, honey, let me tell you a story. And he told her the whole thing. I, I didn't hear every word. I was over in my, my seat. But she kept looking over at me, and, you know, and every now and then she, she'd look at him. I don't know what she's looking for, you know. And uh, she began weeping, and, of course, she was terribly hurt. And, and he, you know, I, it probably took months to really heal the situation, or years. But in any case, he, he repented to her, and then he led her through the sinner's prayer. It was a precious thing. The last time I saw them was in the O'Hare airport. I gave them my Bible because they didn't have a Bible. I said, hey, you've got to read this. You know, so I gave them my Bible and sent them on their way. Power evangelism. Now, how in the world am I going to write a, a diagram to explain how you do that? <laughs> Whenever you get on an airplane, look for the guy that says adultery across the screen. 
It's hard to write an evangelistic manual, you know, for that sort of thing. Because you see, that's not technique or methodology. That's dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's operating in the supernatural realm. Let's continue. And so what I've got here tonight is a few stories that we've, we've developed out of the text, uh, the New Testament text, that will illustrate the dynamic of evangelism in a way that you wouldn't normally think of it. First of all, these are stories that you don't normally associate with evangelism, but if you use the Ingle scale and see at what level there's contact made, and as you listen to uh, my explanation, you may get a new viewpoint. Remember, we've been talking about a new viewpoint, a new paradigm to operate out. The first one I want to bring in is the focus on human predicament. Keep in mind that a, that a difficult or dire circumstance can bring about evangelism. This can, this can be a pathway for God to use to bring people into salvation. The first one I want to look at tonight is the story of Jairus' daughter. This is found in, in the fifth chapter of Mark. It begins with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by a boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. And while he was by the lake, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. Now here's the problem. The press of the problem is key. Remember, we're dealing with a human predicament. Please come. My little daughter is dying. Come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. And so Jesus followed him. Now on the way, he has an, an encounter with a woman with the issue of blood and he heals her. In so doing, he, he's you know, caught up for a period of time and he lags behind and doesn't get to Jairus' house on time. And so it picks up again in the 33rd verse in which it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and says, Your daughter is dead. Now I don't know about you, but if I was Jai, I'd be upset. You know, I had him first. I, well, when I first got him, she was alive. But on the way, he stops to heal this other woman. And he doesn't come home with me, and my daughter's dead. And I can just imagine how his, his uh, heart just fell at that moment. Can't you? Just crushed by this circumstance. And Jesus is sympathetic to that and sensitive to that. And notice his response. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, and the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Now, why did they laugh at him? They laughed at him because they thought, He doesn't know what he's talking about. We know the child's dead. We've been in the room and we've seen that the child is dead. The ch child is dead. This is ridiculous. This guy coming along and interrupting our funeral proceedings. The wake was already well underway. And so they, their worldview prohibited them looking at things any differently. And in that sense, they were they're much like we are. Quite often, when God says something that, that is against our worldview, our presupposition of how things work, we have great difficulty. From time to time, the Spirit of God may speak to you and say, go over and speak to that person. And what happens? Your worldview comes into focus. The protocol, the natural behavior that you've been trained in comes up and you say, I don't know him. I can't go do that. 
And many of us have missed some of the greatest experiences and adventures of our Christian lives because we haven't learned to do those very simple things that God's asking us to do because our worldview and our behavior, the code, would stop us from doing so. Well, in this case, they, they thought, well, he doesn't understand it, so they just laughed at it. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was, and he took her by the hand and said to her, uh, little girl, I say to you, get up. Isn't that hot? <laughs> he didn't pray very long prayers. Our Father and our God. He didn't pray that prayer. He just said, little girl, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and walked around, and she was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now, as you read further in the text, you find that there's a conversion dynamic here. Jairus and the whole household turned to the Lord. It's implicit to the text and not explicitly stated. But you get the impression that this marvelous deed not only brought the girl back to life, but had a, a dynamic in which evangelism uh, occurred as an aftermath. Power evangelism. Let's look at another one. Aeneas and Dorcas, as referenced in Acts, the ninth chapter, verses 32 uh, through 35. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he uh, found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Now, have you ever prayed for somebody that's been bedridden for eight years? On numerous occasions, I've been called to pray for people that have been bedridden for long periods of time. First of all, there's, there's all kinds of things about the person that are immediately observable when you're called into that kind of situation. The, the condition of the body, the muscles, the, the mindset, the, the whole, there's a philosophy, there's sort of a, 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 a relationship develops in which the person actually sees themselves and their sickness as one, uh, to the point where, you ha where it's very difficult to break that mindset and to help them see that, that healing is even beneficial. Uh, there's a problem of, well, if I get well, I have to go back into the job market. I have to resume responsibility. I have to re-enter the adult world. And, and so there, there's an underlying tension. This is, uh, uh, I think, uh, implied in the, in the John 5 text in which Jesus goes to minister to the man at the pool of Bethesda. And he says, will you be made whole? And uh, I, I think there's a real problem sometimes in ministering to people that have had prolonged illnesses in which they really don't want to be made whole because they don't want all the responsibilities that go with being made whole. And so we have to deal with that. We have to have some dialogue often and talk those things through as we're praying for the people. We'll talk more about that later. But in this case, Jesus comes to a man who's been bedridden for eight years. And, or excuse me, Peter does. And, and Peter said to him, Jesus Christ, here's another one of those long prayers. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. Don't you like it? That means get up and fold the covers. Immediately, Aeneas got up. Now notice this. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. One man is healed and two whole villages come to Christ. Can you see the correlation between the supernatural dynamic of the ministration of God and the resultant evangelism? Do you believe that Peter didn't have to explain salvation to them? Well, of course he did. Although the text doesn't state it, we know that there has to be communication. 
There has to be understanding. They had to work their way through the Engel scale. They had to understand the theological implications of the decision they were making. But the important thing is that this dynamic of the spirit moving can cause a conversion uh, receptivity that can only be gained that way. You see, when you're in the presence of God, it bothers you to be in the presence of God. It frightens you to be in the presence of God. It's awesome to be in the presence of God. And when you're in God's presence and God's moving and doing things, it brings you in a different, puts you in a different state than you would be if you were operating in something much more sterile of His presence. And so when you see the power of God, when you see the manifest moving of God's Spirit, it brings you to a point in which you're much more receptive to receive all of God, all the things of God, all the aspects of God, than you'd be able to without it. Let's look at another one, and that's the ministry to Dorcas. It says in Joppa there was a disciple named uh, Tabatha, which is also translated Dorcas, who was also uh, doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. Now, if that's not a problem, I don't know what is. She became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they uh, sent uh, two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. And Peter went with them, and when he had arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the windows stood around, or all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. And Peter sent them all out of the, of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed, and turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes. And there's another one of those prayers. Tabitha, get up. And seeing Peter, she sat up. And he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. There it is again. The correlation between the power ministry and the ultimate evangelism of many people. Peter stayed on in Joppa for a time with a, a tanner named Simon. And so we can see the dynamic in which the ministration of the Spirit of God can bring about evangelism, uh, and in one case to two whole communities, and another case to uh, the surrounding communities as a result of the, of the healing of a rather prominent and evidently good person. Now let's look at another aspect of evangelism, and that's what I call the divine appointment. There's the human predicament, meeting people at the point of a very strong felt need with the resources of God by divine uh, preparation, help, unction, and anointing. And then there's also the dynamic in which God will bring these en encounters about and we can actually have what we might call a divine appointment. This is, there is, a, in my opinion, an appointed time in which God encounters an individual or group through often spiritual gifts and sometimes spiritual phenomena. The first one that I want to talk about is the Samaritan woman as referenced in John, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 26. Now, most of you are quite familiar with this text, and so let me just remind you that Jesus encounters this woman, uh, engages her in dialogue concerning some water, uses that as a reference point to explain some spiritual things as it relates to water. And uh, at a given point in the dialogue, as they uh, I evidently are getting you know, closer and closer in their communication, he speaks to her about her personal problems. 
And so I want to look, uh, you to look with me to the 15th verse of the 4th chapter, and we'll pick up there. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to, get, to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You said a mouthful, baby. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. <laughs> what you've just said is quite true. And she said, Sir... I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> now, we have difficulty understanding the dialogue. First of all, most of us have been trained that, that uh, prophecy went out with the New Testament times. And so we've equated prophecy with preaching and teaching. And uh, the truth is, uh, they're not preaching and teaching, although they can be content-related uh, re uh, to that. They're not the dynamic of preaching and teaching at all. When she said, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet, she wasn't saying, I perceive you to be a teacher, a communicator, an evangelist. She was saying, I perceive you to be a seer, someone that can see the unknown. Because he had just told her something about herself that she knew he couldn't possibly have known, except by supernatural unction. Jesus here had clearly what, I, what the Bible calls a word of knowledge. He knew a fact about her that he knew supernaturally by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, in exchanges with people, evangelistic exchanges and other kinds, you can anticipate from time to time God giving you supernatural knowledge, supernatural understanding, so that you can know just how to speak to them. Uh, a, a year or two ago, when uh, Blaine Cook was coming home uh, from New York City uh, on Jet America, uh, when he got on the plane... Uh, a little stewardess walked by, and when he looked at her, the Lord said, you're going to lead her to the Lord today. You're going to lead her to me today. And he thought, hot dog, you know, can't wait for it. Uh, things developed over a period of an hour or two in the air. It's about a five-hour flight. Uh, at one point, uh, Blaine went back in the back of the plane and started talking to her. Uh, as soon as he started talking to her, I could see the Spirit of God just descend on them both, clear from where I was sitting. So I began praying. I couldn't hear the content. When Blaine went and started talking to her, I don't know the exact conversation, but I know that as he was walking back there, the Spirit of God gave him five pieces of information about that girl that he could have known by any other means. The Spirit of God told him that she had great fear of never getting married, that she had, second of all, just gone through a broken relationship with someone that she had been very intimate with and lived with for a period of time that had left her, and as a result, the, the old latent fear of never really reconciling things, never really finding somebody that would love her and take care of her was now just inflamed. She was totally uh, fearful. And she was also very hurt over the recent relationship, which had resulted in a major problem of conflict with her mother, who was probably just trying to keep her out of these kinds of affairs and uh, kinds of things and was, you know, admonishing her like a, mo a mother would. I don't know that for sure. But Blaine knew that there had been a, a very uh, nasty encounter between her and her mother, that she also had uh, fear at another point, and I can't remember what that was. I think it had something to do with uh, a physical ailment. And then there was a fifth piece of information. So Blaine's back there leaning on a chair talking to her, and, and she's saying, you know, where, where are you guys from and what are you doing? Well, we've, we've been to Europe and we've been ministering there and we've been praying for the sick and evangelizing and we're on our way home. And, uh, and uh, she said, oh, that's interesting. And Blaine said something effective. Yes, and, uh, you know, you might want us to pray for that condition you have. 
and named it. And she said, how did you know that? And he said, well, God told me. And he also told me that you've just had a, a serious affair and that you've broken up the relationship and that you're really, really rather broken up inside over it. Tears instantly. And that, you, that you've also been living with a lifelong fear of rejection that you'll never find a relationship with somebody that will really love you. Well, by the time he got to three and four, <laughs> that gal was about, you know, to be scraped up off the floor. And he just bundled that all together and he says, you know, I know somebody that will never leave you nor forsake you, that will always love you and keep you, that will heal your sicknesses and take care of your fears. Will you think that wasn't easy to lead her to Christ? And so he said, but before I do that, let's just pray for these problems. And it turned out she, had, as he began praying, the Lord gave, her, gave him three different physical problems, measurable illnesses that that woman had. And he prayed for her and she was healed of all three instantly. Isn't that incredible? Healed of all three, he led her to Christ and then brought her back up in front of the plane and said, here's your new sister. I, I can't remember her name at this point. A year later, Blaine's praying one morning in the shower. I don't know if that's where he does most of his praying. But he was praying one morning in the shower. He's getting ready to catch a plane that day to go back to New York City. And while he's praying, the Lord reminds him of this girl, reminds him of her name, and says, you're going to see her today. He comes out of the shower, dresses, goes in and tells Becky, you know, when we catch the plane today, the Lord says we're going to see such and such on the plane. And Becky says, oh, great. They get on a plane, and the first stewardess that walks up to him is such and such. And she recognizes Blaine and says, let me tell you. You know, she's in a church in Manhattan now. She's walking with the Lord. She's engaged to a very fine young Christian man and have a wonderful relationship. And, and no further recurrences of the sickness. Evangelism coupled with the supernatural. Power evangelism. Evangelism led by the Holy Spirit unctioned by the Holy Spirit, focused by the Holy Spirit, information coming about the individual, opening them up like a ripe pumpkin at the right moment. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And she said, sir, oh, I can see that you're a prophet. And then she begins talking religious. And tells him uh, 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 her own background as it relates to worship. Now, if you know that if you read on through the fifth chapter of John, you know that she, uh, fourth chapter of John, that she goes on and uh, uh, after this experience goes back into the village, witnesses to everybody, brings them out. They, they go through a conversion process. They eventually come to Jesus and said, first we came because of her belief and now we're here because of our belief. And it's tantamount to a, a great revival that moves there in the Samaritan community. Evangelism then, accompanied with the supernatural, the supernatural presence of God. Let's look at one more. Zacchaeus, found in Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered into Jericho and was passing through, through and a man who was there by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he went to see who Jesus was, wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree uh, to see him, and since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to the man, Zacchaeus, 
Come down and meet. Now, how did he know Zacchaeus' name? Now, most of us would say, well, that's Jesus. He's the Son of God. You know, he's, he's got, and, and we would be defended from the standpoint of his divinity. But I want you to know, the same guy that knew Zacchaeus' name didn't know how long the kid that was demonized had been in that condition. The same one that knew these things didn't know everything every time. Jesus operated both in his divinity and in his humanity. And from time to time, his, his information was limited because Jesus operated in the Spirit, of the Spirit, and by the gifts of the Spirit. I believe what we see here is a gift of the Spirit. Now, do you think that little man up in that tree wasn't just churned from the inside out when Jesus looked up and he said, Zacchaeus? Huh? Wouldn't it have worked for you? I don't know about you, but I would have been converted immediately. You know, if Jesus looked up in a tree and said, John, come here. Not only did he say that, he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Get it? Can you see the angle scale there? Brings him right down to a personal involvement immediately. He's at stage one. Heard a little bit about Jesus. Didn't know much. Bam, he's at stage four. Personal involvement. Just in one sentence. Can you see it? Supernatural dynamic. You know something? When I started working with this basic perception, and I began going through the New Testament, I assumed that there would be hundreds of places in which evangelism would be unaccompanied by the supernatural. Now, after a couple of years of thinking about it, I haven't been able to find a single case of evangelism that is un unaccompanied by the supernatural. Every single time there's spiritual phenomena, every single time there are spiritual gifts, there is always the numinous of God. We've been operating in a sterile climate. We've been trying to convince men on the rational plane alone, or rational plus emotional, but neither one of them will bring them into the dimension of the spiritual. You can't talk people into heaven. Can you? I've tried. Haven't you? Most of us have worn ourselves out doing it. And so here's Jesus looking at a man who's a tax collector. Now you know the posture of the community towards a tax collector. Jesus looks up in a tree and names him by name and says, Zacchaeus, come on down here. I'm going to go to your house and we're going to have a sandwich. We're going to fellowship together. I think Zacchaeus was converted before he got out of that tree. Well, look at his heart. Look at the response. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Now, if that isn't conversion, it'll do until conversion comes along. We need some more conversions like that in the church today. Lord, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's contrition. That's repentance. That's a responsive heart. This man was converted by the naming of his name. Get it? Supernatural providence of God. Jesus looked up and said, hmm, who's that guy? And the father said, that's Zacchaeus. Tell him to come on down. Because Jesus only did what he saw the father doing. He only said what the father had given him to say. 
He only did the bidding of the Father. He had come to earth to do the will of the Father. You want to know what the will of the Father concerning Zacchaeus is? There it is in black and white. The Father's will is being expressed in the Son. My question is the Father's will being expressed in you and I. Or have we somehow become so secularized in our perceptions that we don't know how to operate in the unction, the anointing, the filling, and the working of the Spirit of God? Zacchaeus, one of my favorite stories. Let's look at one last one. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This is referenced in Acts 8, chapter, verses 25 through 40. And when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the, road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now how do you suppose that occurred? You think he sent him a telegram? Did he publish it in the Jerusalem uh, Post under personals? Did he write him a letter? Did he put it up in the sky? Or did an angel come and speak to him? Either by a vision, a dream, or an apparition. Supernatural providence. The numinous of God. God told him. God sent a messenger. The messenger told him where to go and what to do. He went. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up uh, to the chariot and heard the man uh, reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? And Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice, who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken up from the earth. Now, at what point on the Ingle scale is the Ethiopian eunuch? He's between four and five. He's considering a decision for Christ. He's dealing with what the impact it would have in his personal life. He's reading the scripture. He's mulling it over. He's a lot further along than some. And here he is. God has providenced supernaturally a man to explain the next step to him. And the eunuch responds. And he asks Philip, tell me please who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Now talk about supernatural access... First of all, he's sent there by a supernatural means, and now he's transported away from there by supernatural means. Suddenly Philip was taken away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. He well, I wanted... <laughs> you know, fascinating, you know. He, he, <laughs> Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching that gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, the important thing that we're trying to communicate here is that in the providence of God, God is working in the world today. 
Jesus said that he only came to do the Father's bidding, that he only did what he saw the Father doing. I believe the Father is working in the world today. I believe the Father is working in this room tonight. I believe that it behooves you and I to learn how to see what the Father is doing and join our hands to the Father's activity. Learning how to operate both in the natural, because I believe just as in the case of uh, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch, there has to be a rational, objective, clearly stated, or clearly articulated presentation of the gospel. I think it's absolutely essential for a foundation uh, in the rational realm if we're to grow in Christ. But at the same time, we need to be prepared at any moment and at any time to operate in a supernatural dimension where the Spirit of God can give us insight and understanding so that we can, we can move in on a person that otherwise we couldn't even approach. Get it? One of our young men, in fact, one of the men that uh, was leading the worship tonight, um, oh, I don't even know when this was, maybe a year and a half ago, was down in Huntington Beach. Uh, I think he was street witnessing, or at least he had gone down there to pray about street witnessing, one or the other. And uh, while he was down there, he was walking along, and uh, there's, a, there's a group of bars down there where bikers hang out. And I don't know if you, if you would feel the same as I would, but going into a biker bar would be exciting, you know. And maybe all too frightening to even do. Well, he was walking along, and a young man came out of the bar, and as he did, the Spirit of God said, that's him, go speak to him. Now, I don't know the exact content of what occurred, but I know as he walked up to the young man and began to speak, the Spirit of God named the young man's considerations, said what kind of sin he had been involved in, and called him to repentance right there in front of the bar. And the young man responded and is in our church today. Are you hearing me? God is on the move. God is able to use you and I. God is able to use all of us. We could tell you story after story after story of people operating in the supernatural dimension, both in the rational and the supernatural, both in the natural and in the cosmic, learning how to operate in spiritual gifts, learning how to, to walk in preparation, not only of the mind and intellect, but preparation of the heart and spirit, so that you can be led gently by the Spirit of God to work these kinds of works. Without them, we will never reach our community. We will not do the job of, of expanding the church in this generation. We've already proven that quite handily. We're going to take a break now. We have uh, several stations around the room. I'd encourage you to walk slowly. We'll see you in a few minutes. Power encounter is the clashing of God's power with the power of Satan. Keep in mind that from the fall of Adam, Satan uh, dominated the turf, the world, until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the point of the incarnation, Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. This ushered in a cataclysmic clash between two powerful entities, the Lord Jesus Christ and the prince of the power of the air, Lucifer. Power encounter occurs when the kingdom of God comes against the kingdom of Satan. At whatever point it's vested, it can occur in the expulsing of demons, which is probably the most dramatic form 
of power encounter. It can occur in the dynamic of a uh, person under the unction and leading of the Holy Spirit going into a community and ministering in an anti-Christian atmosphere, climate, or situation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, being having an encounter then with officials, leaders, uh, religious leaders, or public leaders who are antagonistic towards that gospel, and as a result, and a, a resultant uh, clash occurs in which the uh, people representing the kingdom of Satan are vanquished by the minister that the Lord Jesus Christ has established. And so some of the great missionary stories that we've been weaned on as children are power encounters. There are a number of them in the Bible. Uh, probably one of the most dramatic is the uh, story at Mount Carmel, uh, this, in which the prophets of Baal are chosen off by the prophet of God. And uh, the, the harangue that goes on in which... Uh, there's an enticement and, and a, you know, a continual degrading in which they're told to do this and do this because your God's asleep. And then ultimately the fire that came and, and the proof of God's presence and, and the vindicating of God's uh, servant in that process. And so in the Bible, Old and New Testament, we have several encounters. Let's look at a few of them as it relates to the New Testament. We'll begin uh, with uh, an encounter... Depicted in Luke, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 11. One day, as Jesus was standing at the lake of Gennesaret with the uh, people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he, sat, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out uh, a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, this is a, a natural kind of scene. It's just something that could have easily evolved in which the, uh, the Lord wanted to minister and it, uh, it was a natural thing to get into the boat and move off the shore a distance. Uh, but that isn't the point of the encounter. The encounter occurs between two men, Jesus Christ and Peter, who was to become his disciple. Jesus, operating under the unction of the Holy Spirit, led by the Father to do the work that he was doing, began a, a, in this ministry kind of setting, began a dialogue with Peter, and Peter, who was operating in the natural realm, and as a result of that, operating under the auspices of the kingdom of the evil one. You see, there's no intermediate place. You're either in the kingdom of God or you aren't. You're either operating under Jesus' lordship or you're operating under Satan's lordship. There's no secularized space. There's no intermediate place that you can be in. And Peter, operating under the other kingdom, is operating in what we would call the natural realm. As such, he was an expert. He was an expert fisherman. He understood the art of fishing. He'd been weaned on fishing, had been raised up in the fishing community. I'm sure went out many a night sat by the bonfire and heard fishing stories. He'd been trained as a fisherman. There's some uh, uh, non-biblical basis to indicate that he may have even owned a group of, uh, or a fleet of fishing boats and that uh, Peter may have been a very wealthy man. And so there's some indication that he had a, a, a great knowledge of the art and the work of fishing. Whatever the circumstance or situation, we see him uh, here caught in a circumstance in which the, the novice is giving the master directions. Jesus 
in the case of the fishing, is a novice operating with a master fisherman and telling him what to do. Notice the dialogue and the way it develops, the fourth verse. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. Do you hear the implication? We've worked all night and haven't caught anything. And you who don't do fishing or know fishing or have the understanding we have are now telling us to do thus and so. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Can you hear the begrudging dynamic there? I think it's there. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You see, this wasn't just a lesson in fishing. This wasn't just a, a, an artful little story in the New Testament so that it could become a launching pad for evangelists to deal with the issue of winning souls. This is a human drama between two economies. The economy of God is represented in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ operating under the unction of the Father and by the direction of the Holy Spirit and speaking to another man and saying, let's go out and do this at this point in this place. Drop your nets and catch these fish. And another man operating under the economy of Satan in the natural realm, seeing himself in, in, certain in his knowledge, well prepared, understanding his craft, knowing his business. And he looks at him and says, well, oh boy, you know, here's the preacher man telling me how to do my business. I fished all night and I didn't catch anything. And now he wants me to go, well, because he asked me, you know, I've got to, I've got to put up with the preacher man, so uh, we'll just go out here and fish. And he fishes or drops the net and catches so many fish that he's about to burst his uh, nets and, and uh, sink his boat that he has to call for help. Now, on one level, there could have, it, this little human drama that's developed here could have been satisfied on a very natural plane. Wow, this guy got lucky. He told us to go out here and we caught some fish. Isn't it wonderful? Thanks a lot, Jesus. That's swell of you. But that's not the realm. That's not the level, the plane that Peter's responding in. Where's the message? Where's the, where's the penetration? Where's the communication going on? It's going on at a subliminal level. There's encounter going on here between two economies. There's an encounter between the realm of God and the realm of the God of this world. And there's a battle going on. A cataclysmic battle going on. Fighting for the heart and the soul of a man that's, be that's become one of the most preeminent and, and important men of all time. Peter, the apostle. There's a battle going on for his soul. There's a battle going on for his mind. There's a battle going on for his personage. It's carried on at the level of let's go fishing. But underneath it is two economies at war, fiercely antagonistic toward one another. Jesus never met a demon he liked. <laughs> and he didn't like their boss either. And here he is, 
ministering to a man at the point of his knowledge, at the point of his understanding, and taking him out further than he had ever been. And Peter's response is, Oh, God, I'm a sinful man. I'm a carnal man. I didn't understand who it was that was dealing with me. Oh, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinner. Get it? Power encounter. Supernatural dynamic of evangelism going on. Peter went through a form of salvation here. Peter is responding with a heartfelt response. Oh, God, I'm a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they'd taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. You say, well, how do you know that was a conversion? Well, I don't know that it was a conversion. But my feeling is that it was a form of conversion. If it hadn't been a conversion, up. If it hadn't been a conversion, it would probably do until conversion comes along. We need more of these non-conversions in the church today. Where people get up and leave their employment and follow Jesus. So something important happened here in the life of Peter. Let's look at another one. The day of Pentecost is depicted in Acts 2, uh, starting with verse 1. Here we see a, a form again, a power encounter. Curry. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I'm hearing the uh, Disneyland fireworks, and I kept thinking it was my microphone. <laughs> For those of you at home, Disneyland is just a... <laughs> that may be harder to explain than this, right? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked. Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? They were overwhelmed at the idea that these Galileans could be speaking these, this multiplicity of languages. Then how is it that each of them hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They were blown away by this situation. Now, we have difficulty today in the reading understanding exactly where they were at the point they were dumbfounded. It isn't so much the multiplicity of languages that, that uh, is difficult for us, because we can see that in itself as a miraculous phenomenon. But where we have difficulties, we don't really see the underlying dynamic here, because you don't realize that these Galileans were sort of the backward group of Israel. This wasn't the, 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 the cosmopolitan center of, uh, of elite social life in, in uh, Israel in that day, nor is it is today. 
Galilee in that day was, uh, well, much like the part of the country I was raised in, Missouri and Arkansas. And the people from Missouri and the part I was from in southern Missouri and from Arkansas have a decided accent. You can recognize it right away when they start talking to you. And Jesus was a Galilean. And so when he uh, preached, he preached with a Galilean accent. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I tried to tell this story one time in West Texas, and it did not go over. I want you to know that. But in any case, these men were Galileans. Now, have you ever heard someone from Texas, Arkansas, or Missouri try to speak a foreign language? One time I was in Egypt. I'd been away for a while, and I was in Egypt, actually in Cairo. And I was at the airport, and uh, I, was so, I was so hungry for a hamburger, I would have given a hundred bucks for a hamburger. It had been so long, you know, eating all of those weird things that they fed you over there. And, uh, but more importantly, I was hungry just to hear a, an American speak, and all of a sudden I could hear this Texan trying to speak to these French girls that were there on a holiday. <laughs> and here's this big Texan talking to these French girls, and they were, they were cute little girls. They were... Uh, just early teens, and they were laughing and giggling. And he was saying, Parlez-vous, France, say, ma'am? <laughs> <laughs> and they were trying to, to, to uh, wish him good travel. Lay good travel, they kept saying over and over again. And they were having the time of their lives. Uh, actually, he was too. But it struck me again how difficult it is sometimes. You can't hardly get there from there. You know what I mean? When you come from certain points of colloquial speech, it's hard to get to other places. And sounds smooth, suave, and sophisticated. And I think that's an underlying dynamic here. You see, these guys were not only amazed that they were speaking in their languages, but I think the way they were speaking in their languages. They sounded so much like them. And that's what was blowing them away. Now, you can accept that or not, take it or throw it out, but it's the way I look at it. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now, I want you to note something interesting. There's two kinds of people here. The people that had the experience and the people that witnessed the experience. The people that had the experience are out of it. <laughs> having a great time, you know. They're just having a ball. But the people that are watching the experience or witnessing the experience... They're described by such words as amazed, perplexed, vexed, in another place, uh, upset, I think it says somewhere up here, bewilderment. Those that were witnessing it were having a more difficult time than those that were experiencing it. You may find yourself in one or the other of those two positions over the next few days as we begin our clinics. If you find yourself in that place where you're bewildered, vexed, or perplexed, recognize that this only takes one quick step to get over on the other side of the ledger. <laughs> and conversely, to get back as you try to integrate what you're learning. Some, uh, however, have made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And Peter gets up and addresses the crowd. Now, what we have here is a form of power encounter. Again, we're dealing with the rational and the transrational. Something transrational has occurred. Something supernatural. Something from the cosmic world has invaded the empirical world. 
Here's something that sounded like wind and that looked like fire has occurred to a group of men up in an upper story and they have begun speaking in languages that are known languages but unknown to them. Now that in itself isn't so incredibly significant, but the fact that they were speaking in so many languages and doing it so well is what makes it significant. Packaged in the fact that it was instigated by this supernatural phenomena which caused a great crowd of people to come as a result of the rushing of the wind and hearing about the, the, fire, the, the uh, uh, flames of fire and, and then seeing and encountering this stupefying, perplexing, bewildering, and vexing reality that these Galileans are speaking with such sophistication and such smoothness the languages of their own country. This foment... This dynamic, this power encounter, created a foundation for the preaching of the gospel. It made an opening, it made a way for the preaching of the gospel, as it is with much supernatural phenomena. Many times when God does something of this nature, in a, and by that I mean something in, in the supernatural realm that really doesn't have any uh, direct bearing to healing or direct bearing even, in this case, to salvation, He does these kinds of things as a platform for the preaching of the gospel. And Peter, believe me, if Peter had not gotten up in the 14th verse and preached the gospel that he preached, there would have been no converts that day. We must have the coupling of the transrational with the rational, the supernatural with the natural, the power evangelism with the program evangelism. We have to have a presentation of the gospel, but we also have to have presence of Almighty God working with us. And it is that that I'm speaking to, and it's that that I'm calling you to account with this week. That we recognize that there's an encounter going on, people. There's an antagonism, antagonism today against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But more importantly, there's an antagonism against His personhood, against His presence. And when the presence of God comes into your sanctuary and into your life, you will find that you have antagonism. That you are frightened and put off and bewildered and upset, perplexed and vexed against the very God that you've been inviting to come for years and move among you. The first time that the Lord Jesus Christ sent his spirit in great power among us, I was fit to be tied for days. I was so angry. I was so upset. I wanted to get out of the ministry. I said, no way am I going to put up with Why, that's absurd what God did. Of course, I wasn't absolutely sure it was God. But even after I was convinced it was God, I had difficulty with it. And I want you to know that. When God began moving among us, and not, this particular night, we were having a church service. And, and in fact, that, that Sunday afternoon, I, I was coming out of the, the church service. It was Mother's Day of all days. Mother's Day. If you'd think you'd be safe in church on Mother's Day. Well, I, I'm walking out of the church, and, and God says to me, Tell that young man to preach tonight. Well, I'm not in the habit of just telling any old young man to preach in my church. And I said, and particularly that young man, because I heard he was a little strange. And I said, Lord, you want me to have him preach? And the Lord said very clearly to me, yes. So I went up to him and I said, Lonnie, would you like to preach tonight in my church? He said, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for the chance. I thought, oh, no. I'm telling you, I died a thousand deaths all afternoon. All afternoon, I agonized. I said, oh, God, you got me into it again. You got me into a mess. He's going to mess my church up. 
And the Lord said, when did it become your church? I said, oh, that's right, that's right, okay. So I went to church that night, and I <laughs> we worshipped extra long. I found a lot of announcements that needed to be made. But I, I, and as long as I stretched it, it was still time. And so he's sitting there all bright and alert like a kid at his birthday party. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, he looks harmless enough. All right, come on up. So he comes up and he starts speaking. And I sit down over on the side. And, uh, and I'm listening to him. And, and it's great. You know, I mean, it's, I'm thinking, what was I worried about? He looks funny. He's giving his testimony. And, and his pathos in it. You know, and they're trying to weep a little bit. And, you, you know, and, he, and you, you know, salute a couple times. And, he, and he's telling you some great verses. And you're laughing. And just having a wonderful time. I'm thinking, what was I worried about? This is great. You know, God, you're so good. And then he does the weirdest thing I've ever even heard of. <laughs> Everything's going good, you know, and all of a sudden he stops and he says, well, that's it. He said, you know, the church has been offending the Holy Spirit a long time, and uh, he's, he's quenched, but he's getting over it, and we're going to invite him to come and minister. Now, come, Holy Spirit, and whammo! <laughs> the Spirit of God comes! And people start fighting. Well, first of all, he says, everybody 25 years and under, come forward. Well, in our church, that's everybody, you know. <laughs> You know, they're all coming up there. And there's hundreds of them up all crowded around the stage. And he says, come, Holy Spirit. And the next thing I know, people are falling and bouncing in there. And they're laying on the floor and they're talking like turkey. And one kid, he falls. One kid, he falls. And the microphone falls with him. You know, and it's laying right in front of his face. And he's speaking in tongues, you know. I mean, I'm not talking about two minutes. I'm talking about 45 minutes he's talking through that microphone. And we're wading through bodies, you know, trying to get over to him. And we can't get the microphone off, and we can't get to him. And Lonnie is going like a banshee. You know, he's running through the crowd and raising his hands. And, you know, and I'm thinking he's pushing people over. He's knocking them down. But he's not even touching them. He's walking by them, and they're going wham, wham, you know, and falling everywhere. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, get me out of here. And people are grabbing their Bibles and going, not me. I'm not. And they're going out the door. Some of them I never have seen. That was four years ago, you know, that they went out the door. Well, I want to tell you something. When it, when it finally stopped, when it finally stopped, Man, did I get it, you know. I started, all the staff was upset and uptight. You know, they, they didn't tell you the half of it. When, when Sam was mentioning that earlier today, he didn't tell you the whole story. Everybody was pretty uptight. Well, I went home, and I tried to be civil, you know, I was polite. Well, thank you very much, and I, for, for ministering. <laughs> so, I get home, you know, and I, and I try to go to sleep. I, I can't sleep. I get up, and I, I go from... Genesis to Revelation, you know. And I'm looking for Holy Spirit, come. You know. <laughs> wham, wham, you know. <laughs> you know. It's not in the book, man. It's not. I'm upset, man. And I, you know, now it's 4.30 in the morning. And I've, you know, I've, all over and over. I did find a few verses where people fell down. That helped me a little bit. But I couldn't find anything that was just like that. And so I'm sitting there and I'm saying, oh, God, you've got to do something for me. 
You know, I, this is terrible what's happened here. You've got to do something for him. And suddenly it, it connected that I remembered reading something in the journal of Wesley where something like this had happened. And so I went out of my garage and I had a big box of books on re revivalists at different times, you know, revival histories as well as revivalists. And I got them out and brought them in the house and I started, and sure enough, some things like that happened with Whitfield, some things like that happened with Wesley. I found it in the Cane Ridge revival. And then I began going back and forth in, through church history. And, I, and about six o'clock in the morning, I'd found at least ten different times when this kinds of phenomena had occurred. Not exactly, not Holy Spirit come wham, but things like that. You know, things where people shook and fell, people fell and this sort of thing. So I was feeling a little bit better. Now it's six o'clock in the morning and I'm saying, God, if this is you, I've got to have some assurance. I've got to know, is this you? Is this something you're doing or not? Just then the phone rings. And it's my friend Tommy Stein from Denver. Now Tommy wasn't in the habit of calling me uh, all that often in those days, but he would call up every couple months or I would call him. Hey, hey, what's going on, man? You know, what's happening? Did you have a good day at your church? Oh, Tom, let me tell you about it, man. You know, this guy, Lonnie. Oh, Lonnie, I know Lonnie. Yeah, he used to be, oh, yeah, I remember him. Wham, right? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, look, man, this is what he did to me. He came in, he talked a little while, and he said, oh, it's Spirit coming, and people fell down. And people left my church, my staff's mad at me, and I'm not sure what's going on. My wife's happy as anything. She liked it all. <laughs> and he says, it's the Lord. I said, it's the Lord? He said, yeah, it's the Lord, man. It's just, that's exactly what happened to us in the early days of the Jesus People Revival. The same kind of power, the same kind of manifestation. In fact, as we talked, the Spirit of God began gripping his heart, and he began repenting of some hardness that he had towards just this kind of phenomena because he had sort of grown away from it and become too sophisticated for it. And so I felt a great deal of assurance because God had given me a witness a credible witness that had called someone that had been there, someone that had seen it from the inside out. I'd only heard about it. I'd lived here in the community, but I wasn't aware of the totality of the Jesus People movement until much after the movement had already began declining. That will come as news to some of you. But <laughs> Jesus People movement's over. It's a new day now, and God's doing some new things. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I, I recognized in, in, that, in that communication that, that I was in for a, a, an interesting time. Well, over the next few weeks and months, the phenomena continued to occur, uh, often unrehearsed, often without any kind of leading from us. It would just happen in places. Uh, our young people began roaming the community in packs. We would see them sometimes in parking lots and in front of houses, raising their hands and praying for people, and wham, they would go. And over the, that was in May. By, the, by September, we had baptized over 700 new converts. Evangelism was occurring everywhere. That was not, those were the ones we baptized. The best we can figure, there may have been as many as 1,700 new converts in that three-and-a-half-month period. But the ones that we baptized, the ones that came toward us as, as, uh, and became involved in the fellowship, was approximately 700. God was on the move. I had never seen evangelism like that. I had never known that there was that kind of power. The problem was I didn't have any grid to sort it with. Nothing I had ever been taught in my educational background helped me to understand Holy Spirit come whammo and how that related to evangelism. How power and power signs and power activities could bring about conversion in the lives of individuals. But as I uh, began dialoguing with people, and keep in mind I do have some training as a sociologist, 
And so I'm used to measuring phenomena and, 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 uh, and looking at things from that perspective. And as I began dialoguing with various people that were visiting and uh, that had been ministered to during that period of time, I, I found there was a commonality. That regardless of what the, the uh, phenomena was, whether they were slain in the spirit or rested in the spirit or fell and shook or stood and shook or sat and shook, uh, whether they shook violently or mildly, whether they had a, 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 an experience that was somewhat catatonic, or whether they had some other kind of experience, there was a commonality of acceptance of the experience. No one I ever talked to that had had an experience was sorry. They all uniformly responded with, it was wonderful. I feel closer to God as a result of it. I love the Lord more as a result of it. I'm reading the Bible more now. I'm praying more now. I'm sharing more now. I'm more involved in the church and I'm more in love with the Lord than I've ever been as a result of that experience. Now, I don't know how those experiences bring that kind of result. All I know is reporting from the reverse out, that's what they all said. And so I have difficulty at this point in, in my life of resisting that kind of phenomenon when I see the results in the lives of the individuals. It's power encounter. In this case, encounter against what we would call civilized propriety. I, what I thought of as order in the church was evidently not the same thing as what they had in the New Testament church. What I perceived to be order was something near death. <laughs> but life has its order also. And when the Lord Jesus Christ begins ministering in power among you, you can anticipate that he may, from time to time, tip over the order that you have and establish his own. Let's look at another story in Acts, the fifth chapter. In this case, it uh, talks about the apostles. It says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. What's the circumstance? Well, first of all, today, the church has become so secularized and profane that the community doesn't have any thought whatsoever about entering its premises or coming among them. There's no fear whatsoever of moving in among the church. Many people unsaved in, uh, in the community today look at the church as some organization that needs their help. From time to time, I get letters in the mail. They're offering to raise money for me. They want to hold bazaars and sell things among us so that we can make enough money to continue to survive. They want to help old God out with his program. The viewpoint of the community is that the church is not only not relative today, but really has no, uh, nothing that they should be afraid of in terms uh, and or regard for. Whereas the church in the New Testament had the numinous, the presence of God to such an extent that the people on the outside were afraid to visit. 13th verse. No one else dared join them, join themselves, come to them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Why were they afraid? Not a, why were they afraid? Because they didn't know what would happen to them if they moved in among those Christians. They didn't know what would occur if they came among those Christians. They didn't know whether the power of God would come out of heaven and consume them. They didn't know whether their sins would be revealed. The secret sins of their hearts spoken publicly in a meeting. They didn't know whether they'd be called to repentance by name. 
They didn't know whether there would be healing. They didn't know whether there would be demons exposed. They didn't know what would happen to them if they came into the church. When I first saw this in Scripture seven years ago, I remember falling to my knees. I was reading it in the, in the, in the uh, uh, kitchen, uh, next to the kitchen table. I was reading it, and I saw this, and I involuntarily fell to my knees, and I said, Would to God I had a church like that! Would to God I went to a church where it was frightening to visit it! Well, I'm pastoring one like that now. It's dangerous to hang around here. You hang around here long enough, somebody, usually a sweet young thing, will walk up to you and say, you know, you've got a little problem with this in your life. And then name your sin. I've seen it hundreds of times. Not only here in the sanctuary, but in our prayer room, week after week. I've seen the, the secrets of men's and women's hearts exposed among us. As God, through his mercy, has caused some one person to catch the vibe and understand and through word of knowledge, wisdom, or otherwise, some revelatory gift, know the hearts of individuals. Numerous times as we've gathered, those that, were, that had uh, demonic uh, bondage in their lives, that bondage was lifted. They went through uh, either a ex full-on expulsion as a result of demonization, or they went through some other kind of, of ministry. God is on the move here. It's not safe to come to this church. It's not safe to assemble yourself among these people. I like it. Acts, the 13th chapter, Paul and the proconsul, verses 6 through 12. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent from Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Encounter! Power encounter. Jesus had his witness. God had sent his ambassador. But the enemy had his. One, the enemy was entrenched in a powerful position in the court. The minister, uh, Paul came to minister. As he came before Sergius Paulus, uh, who was an intelligent man and, uh, and, re and responded to the message, Elamus took his position and attempted to move him out. Notice the 8th verse. But Elamus the sorcerer, that's what his names mean, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. There was need for action. There was need for powerful action. Paul and Barnabas could have just turned tail and left. Because, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. That guy's going to get us. Yeah, this guy's a powerful dude. He's going to give us a bad time. We're liable to go to jail if we hang around here. Why, he's got the ear of the boss man. He can get us. But instead, it struck the spirit of Paul. And a word of faith came forth. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. We're talking about unction. We're talking about anointing. We're talking about power here, folks. The power of God is on this man. And he turns and he says, You are a child of the devil and from the enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Now, that's not calculated to make friends with that guy. I want you to know that. But Paul is speaking the words of God in that moment. He's speaking under the unction and the anointing. Even as Moses was sent before Pharaoh to speak as God before him, Paul was speaking as God in this moment under the unction of the Holy Spirit. He says, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. 
and you're going to be blind for a time and you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Power, people! Power to withstand. Power to prevail. Power to do the work of God. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now what was the teaching about the Lord? The teaching about the Lord was that the Lord was there. And the Lord is powerful. The Lord is more powerful than the institutions of men. The Lord is more powerful than those that would gain position through ambition and intrigue. The Lord is more powerful than those that have entrenched themselves in man's institutions and programs. And he has demonstrated that power through one faithful witness. And Paul spoke the words of God and God backed up his act. Power encounter. Got it? It's not something you'd volunteer for. It's something that happens to you through the leading, through the unction of the Holy Spirit.